You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lupiton. This week on the show, a very special conversation with the founding trio of one of the most respected and sought-after folk rock bands in the country, known for their hedonistically heavenly harmonies that have lifted them from playing tiny bars around their founding home base of Brooklyn to adoring audiences at Red Rocks, the Apollo, and the Ryman in their new home of Nashville, the Lone Bellow. They say there's nothing like sibling harmony and that there's something in the blood that binds voices together in a way that creates a sonic architecture that can build castles in the sky with just the joining of sisters in song. But maybe there's something even spookier when three people from totally different families in the South find each other in a diner in the city that never sleeps and find that when they put their voices together, it's something more than family. It's like a lightning strike from an unknown god that even they didn't know they summoned. One of the things that I keep feeling as I play music year after year is that athletes and great musicians are connected in a way that maybe they don't realize. Baseball players in particular, they play 162 days a year. Just like most of the bands I talk to, they tour about 150, 160 days a year. And every single night in a different city, they have to perform at peak performance. And even their peak performance from the greatest players like Mike Trout or Jose Altuve, they fail two-thirds of the time. And yet, they have to retain their passion and their love of the game. Let's look at the Lone Bellow as a different type of team. Each night they have to go perform in a different circumstance with different sound constraints, different crowds, different vibes. Maybe they're not feeling well, maybe their van broke down, but they still have to perform and blend their voices perfectly, or the whole thing falls apart. Unlike the best baseball players who are very highly paid, the Lone Bellow cannot go on a prolonged slump. If their harmonies start to fall apart, they do not get booked at the Ryman or at Red Rocks or at the Apollo. It all goes away. I've seen them in loud festival grounds, I've seen them in hushed halls, and their consistency under pressure the blending of their voices. It's so consistently great that it's like if Babe Ruth and Aretha Franklin teamed up and created some sort of three-headed monster. You know what? I would like to see the Lone Bellow sing the national anthem at the World Series. I'm just going to put that out there. Anyway, normally I would never expect a band to accept a 9 a.m. Monday taping. But I was so glad to be able to meet up with Zach, Brian, and Kaneen around Brian's dining room table in Nashville after they dropped their kids off for school. And one thing was immediately clear. After melding their spirits together for three albums and a new one on the way, these guys have a rapport that is so intimate and so intertwined and so hilarious. And when it calls for it, so deadly serious and so full of heart and genuine insight that... I found myself smiling and leaning closer to hear every word they were saying. I was sworn to secrecy to not release this episode until they said it themselves, but this is the first place they actually talked about their highly anticipated new record, Half Moon Light, captained by the multi-instrumentalist and producer Aaron Desner of The National and some of the finest assassins slicing their way through Americana right now. I'm really excited for this new record. 
And while we had a little too much fun going down rabbit holes of embarrassing touring moments and celebrity crushes, I urge you to stick around to the end of the episode where they dive into what has inspired this new record and how hearing a mother separated from her daughter at the border tell her story helped them tell their own. And while Zach, Brian, and Kaneen have written so many beautiful original songs through the years, it's actually a cover that they did recently that cuts to the heart of where they are right now. It's their reverential, spooky version of For What It's Worth, the Buffalo Springfield classic. It's maybe one of the only rock and roll songs that you know exactly what it is from the first octaves hit on the guitar. And then the narrator says, there's something happening here, and what it is ain't exactly clear. For the lone bellow, maybe the questioning, the searching is the most important part. We don't know what's happening, but we're not okay not asking the question. All philosophizing aside, I'm an outright huge fan of these guys. I was super honored that they let me talk to them in Nashville. And uh, you know what? I'll admit to you right now, when I hold my arm in the air and I try to hold a long note like a preacher trying to summon his flock, I stole that from Zach Williams. I saw him doing that. I needed to do it too. I'll admit it right now. But enough of that. Let's talk to him right now. Here they are, the lone bellow. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there telling me I got to beware. I'm Zach, with an H, the only correct way to spell it. Amen. Z-A-C-K. Uh, <laughs> I'm from Ackworth, Georgia, um, which is a beautiful town with a great... We had one of the original Cracker Barrels. Um, close to... He's really good at giant checkers. Yeah. <laughs> Did you grow up with guns in the house in Georgia? Yeah, yeah. I grew up with... I had a, my, I remember one time I found my grandpa's sawed-off shotgun in the attic with my cousin Ben, mm. and it was scary, um, but you could like, you know, throw it up like that, like the movies, mm. and I think back on that, and I'm like, that was not safe. Yeah, all of our guns were like in my parents' closet, <laughs> I used to go look at them and hold them. <laughs> so bad. So bad. So the bad. 80s, they were just like, well, we taught them right, so they're not going to go like, snooping around oh, while we're... supposed to pay attention to kids? <laughs> my buddy has this thing. He's like a super mountain man, crazy guy. Um, anyways, he has this thing. It's this box, and only his thumbprint can open the box, and that's oh. where the gun is. 
Oh it's yeah, it's supposed to be this, the new smart gun thing. Uh, uh, yeah, it's like they... Siri. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Load my weapon. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot that intruder for me. Yeah. I'm tired. I don't want to get not up. Like, no, I'm no watching Gaffy Disable him. And put Make on that up. NPR podcast. <laughs> you guys all have kids, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Who had kids first? Me. <laughs> way, Zach. Way yeah, you, early, you married early. Super early. Too early. Yes. How old were you? 22. Oh. I was 23. But... You, you were smarter. <laughs> <laughs> no. Get, like, getting married at 22 feels impossible to me. What's crazy in my town... It kind of is impossible for you. (laughs) (laughs) Now In my town, at 21... People start looking at you funny. Hey. Yeah. You bathe still? Because you're not married yet. Uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I haven't lived there since I was like 18. Um, But probably. Yeah, my dad is from Boston. When I told him I wanted to get married, he was like, you are too young. But... And I'm from Virginia. Grew up there. Where in Virginia? Fredericksburg. Hmm. So if you ever want to go see some more Civil War fun, American history, probably find a musket. Yeah, you can definitely find a musket. Yeah, Has anyone nice. been held up by gunpoint in this band? I have. Um, we were out. We were out in New York. We were celebrating something. I can't remember. But I remember because I took the cab home with uh, um, Zach and his wife Stacy. And they dropped me off on my block. And I was like thinking outside and I was smoking a cigarette. I was like, that was such a good time. Because we had hung out on a roof and we were like, and I was like, man, I love New York. This is such a good time. And I wasn't even paying attention. And I was, I mean, I was inebriated too. But I was like smoking a cigarette and all of a sudden like, bam, right behind, my, right in the back of my head just knocked me out. Oh, man. Like I saw that. They, they grabbed my stuff, like my phone and everything. Um, and I was kind of like, Doing that and with alcohol, I was like so like loopy. Yeah. So I like talked to a cop for a second. I was like, I can't really do this right now. So I like went back and went to bed, and then got up and went to the precinct in the morning. But he had ended up doing that to like three or four different people. And oh, dang. But it was, it was is, two guys. Is that why you only have a flip phone today? Mm-hmm. No, I don't want a flip phone. I just don't want you know people watching me and knowing where I'm going all the time. He has an iPad that he alternates oh. the flip phone with. No, I, I don't know. I just don't like having a screen on my hand all the time. But I'm not on a high horse about it. Dude, what if it was like a Park Slope mom? <laughs> I'm going around and knocking people out. She's just real pissed off. Just, She's like, I did yoga today. <laughs> I got so much kale, I don't know what to do. You guys formed in Brooklyn, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hard knocks of Park Slope. <laughs> and that was what? No 2000, so many strollers. 2012 ish? 2010. 10? Last month of 2010 was our first month of as, as a band. Wow. What was the first show? Um, Rockwood? It was either the Brooklyn Pharmacy, where mm, Kenine. The show is like a loose. <laughs> that was an issue. If you mean we you sang were, together. You were serving while ice cream I was during working. The show. <laughs> That's true. I had a hundred jobs. That's true. Where were you working? Uh, my first job in New York was at the Brooklyn Pharmacy in Soda Fountain mm. in Carroll Gardens. Because I actually had soda jerk experience 
Mm. Uh, before moving to New York, so I was a shoe in. Well, then maybe it was uh, <laughs> you. You had like a resume. I was like, yeah, I know how to do this. And they're like, maybe Come it was on Roots in. Cafe. Remember that one? Roots. I don't think I was at that one. Though. I think our first think real working. show was actually Rockwood. Um, we played at Rockwood, but the first whole show was that one at Adam Bowery. Whoa. Oh, that yeah. was our first real you show. You sure it wasn't when we opened for Civil Wars in Philly? Oh, well, oh, take no, that. that yeah. was okay. A, I that think was a, it's a pretty good first show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they were just getting going. Yeah. And um, Nate and Joy Williams needed a place to stay. And we had like a uh, mutual friend. I was like, they can stay with us. And they stayed with us. And I was like, hey, our band wants to open for you someday. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know they were a two piece duet. Mm-hmm. Uh, emotional two-piece duet and we came in guns blazing with like seven pieces seven or eight we had a steel guitar player we had so many (laughs) i remember john paul white after the set he uh he just came up to brian and was just like i'm gonna bury you (laughs) and i was like i love that (laughs) he's from alabama like out of of love or out of out of love he likes some good competition good competition just like dude we they will forget about you now. We tried to melt the paint off the walls, and then they were like, <laughs> "Yeah." <laughs> well, we would play Rockwood Stage One, and the drummer would be in the audience on the floor, right? Mm-hmm. And then and even on stage two, there was always and they had the, the grand piano on stage one, right. which was most of the stage, right? And it was just a mortgage. Well, you recorded your first record this. The self-titled one at Rockwood. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Ken Rockwood was kind of like a mentor of mine, and um, he he had a label uh, with Atlantic, and he tried to sign me to it, and the like powers that be didn't want anything to do with it, and we tried to we recorded one time at Avatar, which was this epic studio in Manhattan. That's I don't think it's around anymore. Um, and then, yeah, when we came around to do Alone Bellow, he shut his his venue down for three days and three nights. Uh-huh. And, you know, Rockwood has, like, how many bands a night? Like, 30? Yeah. I mean, it was a big deal that he gave us that, that place. It was amazing. And we made it. This guy, Charlie Peacock, um, from, uh, from here, from Nashville, brought all of his gear up and made it a studio. Hmm. Yeah, Richie Biggs engineer. Yeah. Did the whole thing in a round. Had hmm. a banjo player in the bar. Hmm. That was Jason. Yeah. <laughs> My husband yeah. played banjo behind the bar. And he play, your husband plays bass with the full band, right? And keys. Yeah. Everything. He plays it all. It was funny because when I saw that you guys earlier this year, I think, stripped back to the, the trio, mm-hmm. um, so you had to like lay off your own husband. <laughs> <laughs> Like, how did that conversation go? Or he was fine with, he was home with the kids. Yeah, he was cool. He, like, uh, he doesn't like performing, I would say, as much as we do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is he more of an introvert? Yeah, for sure. Um, no, it was it was a different kind of time, but it was, it was a good, like, change of rhythm, I think. Mm-hmm. He got to, he got to chill at home with our son, um... I think the last time we played with you was in some ski town. 
Mm. And you were very pregnant. <laughs> I love that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> but like, the, like the guitar was resting on. Oh yeah, I had really, to do like, a, like I had vertical. to do a lot of like, like um, side playing. Yeah, like, it looked like you were playing dobro. <laughs> and then she had a little John Prine vibe going there. For a <laughs> In spite of our shit. Um, yeah, it was really comfortable. Did you, <laughs> how long did you go until you had to actually stop? I think it was, I think our last show was, I was 38 weeks pregnant. It was like full like, term, for sure. <laughs> that was, was that Jazz Fest? Yeah, the, oh, I think wow. the last show we played was New Orleans Jazz Fest. I mean, you gotta play that show. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, right. but man, I was like, and, uh, I remember looking over at you and I was like, that girl's killing. Me. I couldn't believe like she was she was pregnant, like about to have a baby and just like it was just crazy. blowing it out of the water. It was so awesome. Yeah, it's crazy. From my perspective. Um after the set Snoop Dogg was playing, so like <laughs> it's a natural progression. Waddled over to Snoop's set. And he was just like, So what we get drunk, so what we smoke weed. And I was just like sitting there. I was standing there with my like enormous pregnant belly and just being like, I don't think I should be here right now. <laughs> Stevie um, Wonder also played. He was wholesome. He was great. <laughs> <laughs> he was wholesome. <laughs> One of the questions I was going to ask you is, uh, what would be the most unconventional but amazing tour pairing, mm. Lone Bellow and Snoop Dogg, or? I mean, I would love to do Lone Bellow and Boys to Men. I'd love to. Oh, uh, let it happen. That would make sense. Um, I think, but unconventional, it would have to be like, um, I don't know, maybe, uh, Imagine Dragons. Mm. <laughs> Dang. Just kidding. So <laughs> uh, um, Third Eye Blind. <laughs> Eagle Eye Cherry. <laughs> Creed. Oh, save tonight. That'd be cool. Dude, it had to be like, I'd like to go out with Nas or, or like, what, Chance the Rapper or something, but they probably wouldn't let us. We would be his choir, though. I'd go for it. Yeah, we would help any way we can. Any way. You could do Kanye, and then you could be the choir at his weird church services. Mm. Oh, the Sunday service? Does he have weird church services? Oh. You haven't seen that? It's it's on, I just thought he did it one it's time at that, uh, at the, um, Bonner, not Bonnaroo, but at Coachella. He does it all the time. It's like a whole thing, yeah. yeah. You guys opened for Eric Church at like arenas, right? Yeah. Was that weird or was that, that awesome? That was a flop. <laughs> it was not. It was a mismatch. Um, <laughs> Eric Church is, he is very so awesome. awesome. So kind. His crowd would his, yell. They didn't enjoy While we're playing. <laughs> Can we please hear Eric Church? Eric. <laughs> but like, that's what I don't get is that people, at least there's some reviews that were like, they're really bringing this heart and soul to country music. I was like, huh, are Lone Bellow country music? Yeah, whatever hey, they want to be. Hey, teach his own, man. I don't know. I love Who country knows? music. Siri, <laughs> tell us. Get my gun and tell me. Well, if like you have a vaguely southern accent, are you country music? <laughs> I know, you, right? you have an acoustic guitar? I don't know. I don't know. We wore a lot of vests when we first came out the gate. I think that may have thrown very dustful yeah, people like we off. Were mining coal. I was. We like we were bringing back coal. <laughs> if you get like one of those ten types of Brian, he looks straight up like he just wandered out of a coal mine. Yeah. I, love it. <laughs> I was just looking at that picture of you from the Danish festival after we were like really jet lagged, and then he's like, "Let me take intense close-ups." Dude, I love that picture. Yeah. I look like I'm. Like, Is that tuna fest? Yeah, yeah, tonight, yeah. yeah, that's where uh, I celebrated 
David Ramirez's birthday all night, and then we took those photos. <laughs> you look like you did. And then uh, I posted one of the photos as a joke because my face was so swollen, and my dad commented, time to turn the corner. <laughs> He's like, do you need to come home, son? <laughs> I mean, if like if a younger band or a younger artist like would ask me like for any sort of advice, I think one of the things I would tell them would be make sure when you're starting out that your clothing choices and or like your picture choices won't be super weird and embarrassing ten years later. Like yeah. like something that maybe stands the test of time more. Because mm. like I feel like in especially in LA in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when we were getting going, like the speakeasy vibe was very in. So I'm wearing like a boater hat and like mm-hmm. it was a lot of suspenders, which everyone was doing. But hats sure. really But it's just like really it looks bad. Life. It looks like we were playing like Halloween. Well, because like, one of your on band members River. also probably had like one really deep V. You were like, Brian, please. <laughs> don't bump me. That's not. No, Brian with a Y. Oh, nice. Please don't wear the deep V. That's not what we're going for. I can see a lot of your pics. <laughs> Is there something from your past, either songs or history, that is embarrassing to you now? Yeah. There's, there's a couple off the first record where I'm just like, yo, that was... Writing a song about a dream about dogs writing notes to me. <laughs> and I just slipped those lyrics in. Now I sing that song every night. And it's very earnest. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, let's see here. We've had some very embarrassing moments. One of my favorites, when we, in Chicago, we opened for Robert Plant. Mm-hmm. And Brian accidentally almost pulled Patty Griffin's chair out from underneath her. <laughs> yeah. And that She's a very was, tiny lady. That was a moment. That was like, I froze. Yeah, one of my favorite moments from that night and embarrassing was we all watched Robert Plant and Robert Plant, before the show, came up and introduced himself and like a tear just dropped from my eye. <laughs> <laughs> and... But later, he was like, bring me your CD, uh-huh. you know, like, while we're there. And we're like, we're just starting to, like, play these kind of shows. I'm like, it's crazy. Absolutely, I'm going to give you a, a CD. So he played the show and everything, and they locked us out of the green room afterwards. Like, yeah. get out, get your, yeah. get everything. And I was like, no, I'm a, So I broke into the green room to hand him a CD. And when I got in there, he was, like, shirtless behind, like, just trying to dry off. And I just froze. <laughs> Just froze right in front of him, like like with the CD held out like this, and, and, then, uh, started, and, then, and then, then many tears started to fall. And he grabbed the CD, and he was like, and then two bouncers grabbed me, like he was like, yes, "Thank you," and then the bouncers just threw me out of there. <laughs> but I gave a CD to Robert Plant. Do you think he listened to it? Probably not. Right now, yeah, no. <laughs> it's just like the one CD that's stuck in his car. He That'd listens awesome. to it every day and he can't remember <laughs> he the name of the band. He doesn't know how to take the CD out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your most starstruck moment? Ooh. We've had some funny moments. I kind of want to stay on embarrassing longer. <laughs> keep, keep going, please. Do you have an embarrassing starstruck Oh, moment? remember the capo? Your capo moment? Oh, uh, yeah. Like That's old. That's kind of like starstruck and embarrassing. Okay, all right, so it was like 2006, and I was playing shows at Rockwood all the time, 
and I forgot my capo, and this brown-haired lady that sounded just like Nora Jones was singing, uh-huh. and I was like, hey. At Rockwood? At Rockwood. Oh. And I wanted to be like, hey, you're like really doing the Nora Jones thing hard. <laughs> And I went up and asked if I could borrow her capo, and she was like, yeah, sure. And then Ken Rockwood was like, hey, that's Nora Jones. <laughs> Give her her capo She's in a wig, and don't be stupid. And She was playing guitar? Yeah, it oh, was yeah, when she, she was guitar. learning how to play, like, electric, and she had this, like, secret band she was doing in New York. It was really fun. It was before the Little Willies thing? I don't yeah, know. I remember going to a show that she played. There's a name. It was called Little Willies. Is a thing. Yeah, she had like this honky tongue. She put a couple albums. <laughs> That's out. right. They're amazing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They called so, it Fang Banger. Yeah, it was something like that. <laughs> I remember that. I was like, lost Ooh. to the b- dustbin of history. <laughs> Anyways, and then we we uh, played the Apollo a few months ago. Um, for Mavis Staples' birthday, mm-hmm. and she was there, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Hey, remember this one time?" <laughs> and I like, told the capo story. Halfway through the story, I lose her completely. She's just like, <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> and then later on that night, I was like, "Hey, can I take a picture with you? You remember I'm the capo guy?" And she was just like, "Not unless you have a capo." And I was like, "I mean, it's upstairs." Really? <laughs> she was like, "Yeah." And I was like, "Oh, that's ice cold." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So now I know she's listening. So next time, 2006 was a long time ago. I mean, she, you know, she yeah. maybe didn't remember. We Absolutely, made, we no. also made David Byrne that, that night. Oh yeah, that was great. We crossed the street with David Byrne. I was really cool with him. I was not. And then I was, I was like, I was really proud of how cool I was. I'm such a huge Talking Heads David Byrne fan, and I was like, told him that, like we were at a festival together. I told him how much like his his show is inspiring and I just walked out and like called my best friend and I like we're both huge fans like here in Nashville and I'm like I just freaking talked to David Byrne and I was cool ooh I know my starstruck moment it was from like one of the first radio conferences we played it was in New York we're all like scared out of our minds this is awesome and we go to like some random nondescript building and random room we're waiting to play for all these like radio programmers and there is this like outrageously handsome man wearing like a three-piece suit. And just, it was meatloaf. It was meatloaf. <laughs> <clears throat> just chilling in the green room and he starts singing. And we were like, you guys, that's Joe. From like, I wanna know, I wanna know what turns you on. Which if you're from like our era of music, I mean. But it wasn't just him. It, it was, wasn't it just was him. Also... So he was sitting there and then a woman walks in, also outrageously beautiful, and he was like, hey, Eve, what's up? And I was like, oh, my God, Joe and Eve are in our dressing room. Well, and wasn't that same, the same day Ja Rule had just gotten out of jail? Was that the same day? I think so. And we did an interview later on that day, and they put him in this, like, little grandpa sweater, and they were just like, here, go. Oh, yeah, we were on, like, a morning show. And yeah, he was and the he guest. Was totally inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was like triple whammy all in one day. Dude, what a day. And then he threw that festival, which was hard. That was a hard, hard pill yeah. to swallow. It's hard when you're a close personal friend. Yeah. Just like does something like that. I remember one time, um, Ashton. Uh, Ashton Kutcher. Kutcher 
came to one of our shows and invited us back to his house. Mm. And we're like, yeah, that 70s show, absolutely. And Brian, <laughs> Brian decided that he wanted to swim in the, it wasn't a lake, it was the reservoir. The reservoir. There was, yeah, there was many gates to it. Where was this? I've been drinking. in Ashton Kutcher's backyard, and he had, he had been drinking a lot. And he was like, "I want to go swim in that lake." And Ashton was like, "Well, there's a big fence. You got to hop to get over it. I, I guess you can." It's also the drinking water for most of LA. I know. And we're all just like quietly hanging in his backyard around yeah. a fire, and he's like, "I want to go swim in the reservoir." <laughs> so he takes off running, and he. I guess there was like a little gate like this big that you yeah. just open the fence and then the real fence was yeah. there. Well, Brian tried to hop that first gate, ripped his pants in half, came back like completely just real... Crestfallen. Just, yeah. And they were his only pants that he'd brought to play Jay Leno the next night, so he used electrical tape and taped them back together. Yeah, we had to find black electrical tape. And just hope it wasn't too shiny. You didn't bring nice pants for Jay Leno? No. (laughs) No, not for Jay Leno. He was going off air. Everybody we played in the beginning are now gone. I think we were like the the nail in the coffin. They were like, I'm (laughs) retiring now. (laughs) David Letterman was like, like just blowing God. (laughs) (laughs) We can't do this podcast without mentioning that you will be having a new record coming out next year. Yes. (laughs) Do you have a title? Yeah, it's called Half Moonlight, and that's the very first time I've said it wow. out loud. How did it feel? So excited. Good. Okay. It's, um, it was six months in the making, and we turned in the Masters three days ago. So we are like... Who produced? Aaron, Aaron Desner. We wanted to go, we wanted to go back and make a record with somebody that we had really connected with and made a record with before mm. and he was kind of like family so yeah we went back up did you do it here or in no New York? we did it up in New York he had this he has this studio out on this property um, where Ichabod Crane's character's from <laughs> and we started in the middle of the winter and it was like really scary at night and you slept upstairs in the studio and it was mm. like we watched Sleepy Hollow one night it was the... spooky it was the that kind of stuff doesn't scare me, but it was super spooky. <laughs> yeah, it was great. But we got to, I don't know, I've, I think we've always kind of wanted to do a record like this, and we just like went for it. Like everybody that we like respect, and mm-hmm. every, we just like, we like the way you play this instrument. Will you play on this? Mm-hmm. It was like every, we just. Who'd you bring in? Pull the gamut. I mean, Josh Kaufman, um, JT Bates, Bates, Phil Cook. Phil Cook. Aaron played a lot on it. Dove um, Man. Um, Thomas Bartlett. Yeah. yeah. So many just yes. awesome creators. Mm. And there's a whole, like Aaron is like the center of this this creative universe that we um, have a privilege to be a part of. So, I mean, we just went to town. You know when the first single's coming out? Is it a couple weeks or something? We just found mm-hmm. out. It's in October, right? Yeah. yeah. October 22nd. I don't know. Our management just like set it to somebody else. And we were like, huh. <laughs> Wait, which song? <laughs> Wait, when? <laughs> you guys didn't get to decide? I mean, we will. Yeah. It, it was, you know, it's one of those little smooth notes. You know how they do. <sighs> Are you guys a democracy in Lumbella? Maybe. Sometimes. Sometimes somebody, some other one will be bullish or something like that. I mean, I think we are. We all have the, the right to be bullish. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but everybody takes a takes a role, and I think we found a way to like give each other the space to do it when it's when they have a, like the idea. At least that's the when we're working at our best. But yeah, you gotta you gotta let yourself like go like get yourself underwater and try something, and then you always pull it back. You know, you can always pull it back. But like if you're not like afraid you're gonna drown, I don't think you can create anything worth listening to. Honestly. Is yeah. there is there something on this new record that is a departure from Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Goodness. We wrote most of the record. <laughs> yeah. We wrote most of the record on piano. Mm. Like we just were trying some diff- different things and then we bring in other instruments and stuff like that. Are you playing keys on it? Um I play I just play on like one song cuz I'm mm. not I can do it live but once you start having I'm mm-hmm. like a chicken playing but Kaneen's husband is a great piano player. Mm. He's yeah, a beautiful he player. And then Aaron was great. And then we like Thomas. And then it's like what none of us could do, Thomas could do. So it was mm. like we just had it's like a Atlanta Braves in the '90s, just a bench for days. Mm. Is there anything on this new record that speaks to our political times? Yeah. Is there yeah, any message of... songs? Yeah. There's a couple. Um. I mean, do you want to talk about illegal immigrants? I'd rather talk about just enough to get by, just because of that. Oh, it's funny. Yeah, the kind of material. Now that I'm thinking about it, we have a lot of songs that speak to the times, um, rather than just kind of like relationship songs. I guess it's a dumb question, because how could you not? But, you know, I think there is a choice that a lot of us are making right now of not hiding behind the poetry veils. You know, starting to kind of, yeah. like, I have to kind of start to say something, you know, yeah. with our whatever limited platform. Well, I think it's important not to, like, to try to tell a story yeah. and to find empathy and not to say, you're wrong. You're, yeah. You're, yeah. You can't, that's not how you change minds. Bringing, you have conversations. Bringing people into the story. Start a so conversation. Feel, yeah. Well, we tried to put ourselves in other people's stories on this record. Mm-hmm. Um which was a new thing for us. Usually we've been like a very like inner, what's my inner demons? Do you co-write kind of thing? Three of you or do you Sometimes and then sometimes no. So, um, but with this record, we, we really individually and together had like specific stories. One of those, one of those was just enough to get by. We can talk about that. Another one is Legal Immigrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just enough to get by is a song that that was a line Brian had and like a little melody that had always just planted in my brain. So I wrote a song to it that's just about someone super close to me who had gone through a a terrible trauma, and then because of the circumstances, kind of had to keep it under wraps for like decades, Mm. and I felt like. There's so much that goes into when you hide something like that, self-preservation, and also just not wanting to make other people feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Because if it's like a trauma with lasting effects, um, you don't want people to just see that when they talk to you. Mm. Like, um, so that song to me was kind of about the different voices that are playing in your head that are just like, you just gotta like get through this. And it's kind of like a life half lived when you're just living in the shadow of this mm. trauma and you can't really tell people about it. Mm. And kind of the lengths you'll go to protect people from your own pain mm. and what that does to you over time. But yeah, it's kind of an upbeat song though. Yeah. 
it is amazing how I mean, just within the last <clears throat> decade, if not less, you know, where women's stories especially are now like we have to believe them, whereas before we didn't have to believe them or mm. something, you know? Yeah, you can't really buy into the hysterical I'd rather female. Err on the first, <laughs> you know, like you know, like instead of like just in general. The women in my life usually remember things better than the men in my life. <laughs> I mean, did you see, even no, last week, it sounds like you're like a New York Times guy. Did you see the story that they're doing on, like, men that have been sexually abused mm. in the Army? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's that's insane. That's They're way just darker. now coming out, and it's just like, to imagine that people have have built these abilities to compartmentalize things in their mind yeah. to stay sane or afloat for years, for mm-hmm. decades. I'm excited that the times that we're in right now, that people are like, you know what? I think it's, I think it's safe now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let myself say this out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it still requires a, so much bravery. Oh my, yeah, it's insane. So, so much I cannot imagine. What was the song that you wanted to talk about? It's a song that made. It's called "Illegal Immigrant" mm-hmm. that um I wrote. Kaneen leads. It's just so beautiful coming from her perspective. But it was when the um when there was child separation going on mm-hmm. and the whole country was kind of in uproar. And I like sometimes I get in the crazy brain and all that stuff. But I was listening to like NPR, like driving. And um, and all of a sudden, like there was had this story where this mom and daughter had been reconnected in New York, mm-hmm. and the politicians were talking. You know, they were like saying, "How are they doing this?" And I was like, anyway, and then and then she just took the mic and said something in Spanish, and then they told the story and said what she said. Mm-hmm. And she said, um, "In the mic, I promise I'd find you wherever you are. Here I am." Mm. And I had to pull the car over because that's the story I want to hear. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to hear, because when you like compartmentalize hundreds of thousands of people and try to say like, like so one thing is like, we need to help them. And one side is like, like they're, they're, <laughs> they're I'm not even gonna say what some people yeah. say, cause that's wrong. Like you demonize another, your neighbor. Right. Um, but like, you want to hear the story in the middle of it of the one person because once you once you get too high up you can't see what's really going on and um, we also don't hear from the people themselves that's what i'm saying because the politicians yeah. are talking right um, and and um <clears throat> and it just floored me and i was actually going to like a regular nashville right and i was like i was like torn and they were like i'm not gonna write one of those songs right now mm. and I was, can you do this with me and they went with me and we, we wrote the song and i'm really proud of it because it doesn't it just gives you a perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can get mad. I don't understand about it, but like, what really you like? I want to hear stories like that, so I can like, my world can get bigger, not smaller. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and the chorus says exactly what. Yeah, you said. I didn't change any of the words. Mm-hmm. Like, it sounds kind of, you know, what is it trite? Because it's like I promise I follow you wherever you are mm-hmm. when you sing it. But if you know the story, like that's the exact words she said to her mm-hmm. daughter in the microphone. Um, I wonder if yeah. she'll ever hear it. I wonder. I don't know because I don't know the names or I don't, mm-hmm. just place you hear it. But super heavy. I think one other song that is uh, that my husband wrote for this record um, is called "Dust Settles," and 
the chorus ends with the question, how am I going to find you when the dust settles? Mm -hmm. And he wrote it thinking a lot about personal conflict, but reflected in times like I have a big family and we get in like crazy heated political Mm -hmm. debates because you have people from, Mm -hmm. but we love each other so we can have these like kind of knockout, drag out things and then Mm -hmm. all have breakfast together the next morning. Um, But it's kind of this question of like this huge divisive thing happened in our country and such terrible things were said and have been done and mm-hmm. all these things. And how are we going to find each other? What's it going to be like mm-hmm. when, and will the dust kind of ever settle? Like, mm-hmm. um, are we ever going to be able to hear each other? But I feel like that is the importance for me of music is yeah. that it, it is the, the thing that everyone can agree on almost genetically. Like you mm-hmm. have to feel what you guys are singing because yeah. there's, the harmonies that you guys do are, you know, eyes roll back in your head, transcendent harmonies at times where, you, you know, I don't care what side of the aisle you voted for, you're going to feel something, you know. <laughs> and that's what's Unless so, you're a sociopath and then maybe that's not. That's what's but, so you know. mysterious about music in general. It's like, why? Why do we feel something when we hear certain melodies? But there's, like, sounds. evidence you know, going back to, like, the caves in mm-hmm. France and Germany. They were making instruments, like, when they didn't even have the ability to have language. You know, they were already having to express themselves to music. And that's, you know? I mean, that's what is so exciting to me about having the opportunity to just, like, create music specifically. Mm-hmm. Is you feel like you're just, like, a part of some some like timeless language that transcends and I think it is a force for good even though it may feel like we're doing something extraneous or not you know not so, you know curing cancer but mm-hmm. I think it is something that is such a part of our lives for the good mm-hmm. you know it's such a privilege to be a part of somebody's like I'm gonna go out and forget my day mm-hmm. like I think that's such a for me, it just it just makes me so humble that that's mm-hmm. like some, what somebody wants to do. Like, forget all like whatever we're on a stage and all that stuff. They're just like, you know what? That's this is just our time that we're gonna go out with our friends and, and share something together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited too. We we did this thing at the very end. Um, Brian and I, um, both of our grandfathers passed away this year, mm-hmm. and we have a song um, called. Uh, feel you dancing mm-hmm. and it's just like kind of a a letter to them mm-hmm. kind of thing and um at the very last minute when we turned in the masters i had this like hail mary thing where i was like hey my grandmother at my grandpa's funeral mm-hmm. randomly went up and played this beautiful hymn medley mm-hmm. um like right before they rolled him away um, and I got a recording of it, mm. and it's now the intro, the interlude, and the outro on the record, and it's the actual recording of her playing at the funeral. Mm. So I'm really, I'm really excited about that. It's awesome. Well, this has been really fun, guys. Yeah, thanks for yeah, coming thanks, in. Man. This is really awesome, and I'm looking forward to Half Moon Light. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I can't wait to hear the new record. 
While it's still a little bit soon to share new music from their upcoming record, Half Moon Light, uh, I did want to share a song from their beautiful EP from 2018, uh, The Restless. I I totally missed this coming out, by the way. Uh, That goes to show that even if you're a big fan, there's so much music coming your way that you can totally lose it in the shuffle. Uh, There's an acoustic version of uh, Cold As It Is that, man, it feels like you're in church with these guys I don't know what the religion is, but I want to be a part of it. So here it is, cold as it is. the three musketeers of the lone bellow you can go to the lonebellow.com for their music and their tour dates uh they'll be playing in london and in glasgow uh, early next year that is when their new record half moonlight will be coming out you heard it here first folks uh that is produced by the wonderful aaron desner of the national i mentioned that wonderful ep the Restless that came in 2018, and if you go to the bluegrass situation.com, you can see a beautiful video of The Restless. 
And if you go back a year earlier, you can hear the Lone Bellow talking to Kelly McCartney for an episode of Hangin' and Sangin'. It's awesome. You should check it out. If you happen to be curious about what other music podcasts I'm listening to right now, I just got into the Americana podcast hosted by the wonderful Robert Earl Keane. There's an episode that I really loved where he talks to B.J. Barham of the band American Aquarium. Uh, man, there's this part of the story that B.J. tells about writing a song on the spot at a show when he sees his ex-girlfriend making out with her new boyfriend in the front row. I can't stop thinking about it. It's so funny. Check that out, the Americana podcast. Starting tomorrow, I will be heading to Europe with my game Dust Bowl Revival. Uh, the show on the road will indeed be on the road for a month and a half straight. We're going to Germany and Belgium and Sweden and the Netherlands and Spain and the UK. Uh, you know what? If you have bands or artists across the pond that you think that I should seek out and interview, drop me a line on Instagram. It's at the Show on the Road podcast. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash Show on the Road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the BluegrassSituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail. <laughs>